0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 4, verse 18. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 18. Last time we saw Peter boldly addressing the Sanhedrin after he and John were arrested. As Peter spoke boldly of Jesus, the lame man that had been healed stood with him. Peter's speech was so powerful, and the evidence of the lame man's healing so strong, the Sanhedrin could say nothing against them. Let's see what happens next as we resume our study in Acts chapter 4, verse 18.
1: So when the Sanhedrin, verse 18, called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. They all glorified God. You see, the people saw a lame man leap for joy and glorified not Peter and John, but God. Listen, we need to always keep our antennas up and our eyes open concerning ministries that are built upon men and around men and for men. The response to the healing of the lame man is how it should always be, people glorifying God. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Verse 22. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So this man had been lame for 40 years. But his healing came at the exact moment which would maximize glory to God and confirm the fact that although Jesus was no longer seen physically, that he was still working through his church. You know, so often we think, you know, Lord, why aren't you working? Lord, I've been praying. I've been believing. Where are you, Lord? It's been 40 minutes. (laughs) Or it's been 40 days or maybe 40 months. Listen, don't give up. At the right time, the Lord will work to do his glory. You just watch, you wait, and you will see. Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now that was their first reaction. That was their first instinct, their immediate reaction. As soon as they left the courtroom, they got together with fellow Christians, you see, in fellowship. They told them what happened, and then they're going to pray. Now, what do you do when the world deals you a hard blow? What is your reaction when you have a bad day? I mean, when you've been mocked or laughed at or insulted? You know, you've tried to serve Jesus, but you've been persecuted somehow. I mean, what do you do? They got together, and they shared, and then they prayed. Today, a lot of believers... When they're hassled, they don't do what these men do. They say, well, you know, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to go to fellowship. I mean, why did God let this happen to me? And they withdraw rather than coming together. Peter and John knew what they needed. They knew what God wanted them to do, what God wants us to do. They knew that they needed other believers, that they needed to be in fellowship. And then they prayed. And it is one of the greatest prayers recorded in the Scripture. Verse 24, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God. You see, their prayer was vocal. Now, it's certainly possible for us to pray silently in our minds, and we all do that. But we can focus our thoughts more effectively when we actually pray out to God. So when they, had, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. It just means that they were in unity. One accord means they're in unity. The Greek word means that they had one passion and that they were of one mind. It means that their prayer was unified. There was no strife, no contention among them. <coughs> Verse 24, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice how they begin their prayer. First of all, the recognition of the one they are praying to. Lord, you're over all. Lord, you are great. You made everything. See, so many times I think that when we go to God, we're not aware of his greatness. We're not aware of the greatness and the vastness of God. We're so aware of our problem, and we rush right in, and our problem is so large and so big, and we say, God, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how we can get out of this, Lord. I mean, we're about to go down here, God. We're about to go under. Because our eyes are on our problem, and we've lost our perspective, we don't see the vastness and the greatness of God. They said, Lord, you are God. You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them." Great prayers begin with a great God. When Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah, when he was surrounded by the armies of the mighty Assyrians, he responded by praying this prayer. Listen, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 15. He said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And God responded to Hezekiah's prayer by having a single angel kill 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. Sometimes we can lose sight of just who it is We are praying to. Now, obviously, Peter and John and all of the church here that were with them had clearly been doing what all Christians ought to do when they're under pressure. They had gone to the scriptures. They had found in the second psalm the prediction of the actual opposition that they were facing. Look what it says in verse 25 Who by the mouth of your servant David has said, and now they quote Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage, and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. They said, Lord, you know everything that is happening. These things didn't take you by surprise. You spoke about these things before they took place. You see, they're saying, Lord, you're perfectly aware of all of the circumstances that are surrounding us. And you know, that is really a comforting thing to know. God, who is my heavenly father, who created the heaven and the earth, is completely aware of all of those circumstances that I face and that surround my life. He had spoken in advance of these things. So they're saying, Lord, this didn't catch you by surprise. You spoke of these things by the mouth of David. And just as you have said, it has happened. Then verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to do. Did you get that? In other words, the God of history uses the very opposition to accomplish his purposes. That's what they saw. God worked through the free will of man. These people opposed the plan of God. They tried to thwart God's plan. They tried to derail his program. But God operates in such a wonderful way that he uses even his opposition to accomplish his will. So they were saying, God, you're in control. You are the one that determined these things that were to be done. You are in control. And again, that is a very comforting reality and truth. God is in control of my life. God is in control of the circumstances that surround my life. You know, we panic sometimes because we think that everything is out of control. Not so. God is in control of those circumstances surrounding your life this morning. Now, notice that the early church didn't pray that they might have a break from persecution, but that they might have boldness in persecution. Charles Spurgeon echoed their prayer when he prayed this. He said, Lord, I do not ask for a lighter load. I ask for a stronger back. That kind of prayer prevails. Philip Brooks wrote this. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. This is their prayer now. Verse 29, now, Lord, look on their threats. In other words, look at the way they have threatened us and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. What are they praying for? Power to do exactly what they were warned not to do and what got them into hot water in the first place. They say, don't let us shut up because of their threats, Lord. Don't let us keep quiet because they've threatened us, but give us boldness to speak your word. And he says in verse 30, by stretching out your hand to heal. Now keep in mind, it was the lame man being healed that had brought this whole episode down upon them. They just want more. They continue, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now notice that they do not ask to do miracles themselves. They understand that Jesus is the one that heals. That is by his hand. Listen, it is a snare too long to be used to do miraculous things. Because it is often rooted in the pride that wants everyone to see just how greatly God can use us. We should just be delighted in the power of God, not because he has used us to display it. Now, do you know what they are praying in essence? Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Here we are in trouble and in danger of our lives, but this is great, Lord. Do it again. They are asking for more. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Now, we often pray when we are shaken up. These guys prayed so they could be shaken up. Now, just as a footnote, This earthquake is recorded in Acts 4.31. And it's interesting that a very significant earthquake took place in Northridge, California, a couple of years ago, and it happened at 4.31 in the morning. Now, what do you think that means? Nothing. (laughs) It's just interesting. It's just one of my footnotes. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke not in tongues, but they spoke the word of God. Never forget this. The purpose of the empowering of the Spirit is not that we might speak in tongues. The purpose of the power of the Spirit is that we might be bold witnesses. And when they had prayed, The place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They got a very quick answer. This shaking of the place is God's symbolic answer to the disciples' prayer. He is saying to them in this figurative way that he would shake Jerusalem and the world by the message that these disciples were proclaiming. Less than 40 years after uh, this event, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by Titus and the Roman armies. The authority of the priests was broken at that point in the city, and finally the entire nation. The religious theocracy of Israel was shaken, and the people were dispersed throughout the nations of the world. For almost 20 centuries, 2,000 years, Jewish government was not permitted to come into power again. And then within 200 years, the Roman Empire was shaken to its core. The principles of Christianity penetrated and permeated all strata of Roman society and changed them and transformed them. Listen, there is a mighty force mightier than you can ever dream, upon which you can rely to enable you to do what these disciples did, to proclaim a message which is the most powerful, revolutionary message that the world has ever seen, to speak the word of God with boldness by the power of the Holy Spirit. To do this is to shake society to its very core. That is what these disciples discovered. And the only hope of this nation Yes, the only hope of this world is the proclamation of this message in every possible way in the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit. God has made provision that we might do exactly as these disciples did. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke the word with all boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common." These were people who shared the same divine life, who were made up of all ages, backgrounds, classes, status levels of society, and who, when meeting together, regarded themselves as what they really were, brothers and sisters in one family. And out of that mutual background of love and fellowship, they manifested the very life of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice three words that are mentioned at the the beginning of verse 32. Believed, heart, and soul. The unity could be found in these uh, three areas which these words reveal to us. Now, notice it says that, first of all, that those believers, they believed, they were one. You see, they were one with each other because they believed the same thing. They had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and now they were attempting to live out that faith. You see, there can be no fellowship without correct belief. In John 1 and verse 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It is only as we walk in the light of the truth of God's Word that we can enjoy true fellowship with one another. It says in another place in the Bible, in, in Amos three. 3 How can two walk together unless they agree? A common faith unites us. Well, they were not only united by their faith, they were united in heart, it says. Now, here the word heart is used for the human spirit. It it denotes the deepest part of our life. It is the unconscious level of existence, the spirit, the most essential part of our nature. Here were people who, by the Holy Spirit, had been united into one life. You see, they were one heart. At the very deepest level of their lives, they belonged to each other. And, of course, that is only possible by means of the Holy Spirit. They were experiencing a wonderful oneness, a unity which they did not produce. Those things which before divided them all of a sudden faded into insignificance. They had met the Lord. They were together And they were one. But they were not only one in belief and one in heart, made so by the Holy Spirit to share their lives of Jesus Christ together, but they were also of one soul. Now what do you think that means? Most of us read this and we say, well, they were of one heart and one soul, as though it were a double way of saying the same thing. But it is not. The soul is different From the heart. The soul is different from the spirit. The soul is the conscious part of life. It is where we consciously live. It consists of the mind and the emotions and the will, whatever is going on in your thoughts right now. I mean, you look like you're listening to me, but it may not be the case. But whatever is going on in your thoughts right now is an activity of your soul. Your mind is engaged. Your emotions are feeling certain things. Your will is making choices. That is the soul. That is the realm of experience. When it says that these early Christians were gathered together in one, both in belief and in spirit and in soul, it means that they not only shared the life of Jesus Christ as a fact of their existence, but they also experienced it. Do you get it? That's what made the difference. These early Christians were united together, not only in heart, but also in soul. That is, they felt it. They experienced it. They emotionally enjoyed their unity. It was part of their daily life. And that points to where the problem lies with many churches today. There is unity. In other words, there is a oneness of spirit, but there is no experience of it. There's no experience of it in the soul. You see, it's quite possible to come to church and sit together in a worship service like this one, united in physical presence with other Christians, to sing the same songs and to listen to the same message and to relate to God individually, but to have no sense of belonging to one another, of really truly being one. It is possible to come week after week and month after month and year after year and never know the people with whom you worship. When that happens, there is no unity of soul. And that is what is lacking today so much of the time and what the early church so wonderfully possessed. Not only did they have it, but it manifested itself in the fact that everyone had a new attitude toward things, that is, material things. Look at verse 32 again. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. That is, his own exclusively. But they had all things in common. Now, that was not communism. That was not a forced distribution of goods. It was not an attempt to make everyone give up their material things and redistribute it to others. No, it was a change of heart. It was a change of attitude. It was saying, nothing I possess is mine for my exclusive use, but everything that I possess is God's, and so it's available to absolutely anyone who needs it. Because of their unity, they regarded people more important than things. They recognized God's ownership of everything. It all belonged to him, and so it belonged to his people. Now, there is a contrast between communism and commonism. It says, but they had all things in common. See, communism says, what is yours is mine, I'll take it. Communism says, what is mine is yours, and I'll share it. Now, the Greek language, the original language that this was written in, does not mean that everyone sold all of their property all at once. Rather, from time to time, this was done as the Lord brought needs to their attention. Now, wherever that kind of vital life occurs, there will always be results. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles gave witness. With great power. This is both the result and the root of the uh, the attitude in the previous verse. Putting God first, people second, and material things a distant third. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again the central place the resurrection of Jesus holds in the message of the first Christians. Then it says, And great grace was upon them all. God's favor, His smile from heaven, was evident everywhere. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now, the language here indicates that this was an ongoing process, that from time to time, people would sell a possession, bring the money to the church so that the needs could be met. It's not that everybody who had any property were being forced to sell their possessions and give everything to the church. It was just that people didn't wait for everybody else to do the giving, you see. When a need arose, they gave of their own possessions to help someone else. Now, in order to emphasize the nature of what was happening among these early Christians, we are given a specific example of one who knew how to live because he knew how to give. Verse 36. And Joseph, literally Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. His name was Joseph. He was a Cyprian Jew, one of the dispersion, and he was a Levite of the priestly line. And it says here that he sold land, Now, that is very, very interesting, because the law declared that a Levite wasn't supposed to own property, according to Numbers 18.24. Now, why did Barnabas have land to sell? Well, evidently, the law had been powerless to convince him to give up his land. That is, until he was born again. Then he willingly let his land go. Because the law never works. You see, the law tries to force people to be kind and to be good and to be equitable, to be generous. But it doesn't work. It wasn't until Barnabas was touched personally by the Lord that love and compassion filled his heart. And there in Jerusalem, after those days in Pentecost, seeing the needs of his new brothers and sisters in Christ, he said, what's mine is yours. You see, what the law could not do, love did. That's the way it always is. Love accomplishes what the law can never do. And because of his new nature of love, he had been given a new name by the apostles. His new name was Barnabas. Bar means son of. And he was son of Nabas, son of encouragement. He had the gift of exhortation, see, of comfort, of encouragement. That's a wonderful gift. And he used it so diligently, and he employed it so widely that everyone began to call him by his gift. I think that's wonderful. And wouldn't that be great if everybody started calling you by your gift? It would be if you're using your gift. Here was a man with a gift of encouragement. Every time you see him in the book of Acts, he's engaging in the ministry of encouragement. This is the first time that we see him And he's encouraging here. You see, encouragement takes on many forms, and one of them is financial, spreading it around. I mean, it was like he was saying, well, I'm not using this. God can use it. I mean, whoever needs it, that person needs it, he can have it. He saw somebody who had a need, and he gave. And so they call him the son of encouragement. He was an encourager, you see. He was a giver. And we need more men and women like Barnabas. We need more encouragers in the body of Christ. Now, sadly, not all are like Barnabas. As we go on now, we eliminate the chapter division here. As you know, the Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the chapter divisions were not inspired. Men put those in there. And uh, there should be no chapter division at all. Chapter 5 begins with the word but, a black bee in my Bible which means that it deals with the same subject as chapter 4, but as we will see, is the reverse side of the coin. Now, so far in the book of Acts, God has been adding to the church. At the end of chapter 2, it says, The Lord added daily, as such should be saved. Now you are about to read where God subtracts from the church. Addition is good, but unfortunately, too many churches, too many pastors, that's all they're concerned about more and more people, adding more and more people. It was one great commentator who, after looking at this section of Scripture, said, Oh, the blessed subtractions. Additions are good. Subtractions can also be very blessed because God often subtracts that he may multiply. Now, we're going to read that God multiplied them later on. There is an increase by addition, then subtraction, that brings multiplication
0: we hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen thanks again for listening and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way